Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, this is J.J. Burden, former NFL wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. Our special guest this week is former NFL linebacker Reggie Walker. Reggie played with the Arizona Cardinals from 2009 through 2012. He then reunited with former head coach Ken Wisenhunt with the San Diego Chargers, spending the 2013 and 2014 seasons with the team. He was in training camp and preseason with the Denver Broncos in 2015, but was released before the beginning of the regular season. In this interview, we talk about his football career and what he's been doing since he retired from football. His main focus has been to talk about his experiences as a victim of various forms of abuse and working to help others who've had similar experiences. He's also written a book and created a class that is taught in colleges and universities. You're not gonna to wanna to miss this episode. There will be no pro football history nugget of the week this week. We want Reggie's message to stand on its own. Now let's get to our interview with Reggie Walker. I'd like to welcome Reggie Walker to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. Thanks for being here, Reggie. And how are you today? Oh, thanks for having me, Ken. And I'm doing good. Doing good. Good. Now I know that you were born in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, how long did you live there before you moved down to the continental U.S.? So I was born there. My parents are both in the military, so I was I was born on a military base. Um, I was there. I'm pretty sure two years, and then we moved to uh, North Carolina after that. Okay. How long were you there before you moved? Because I know you eventually got to California. Oh yeah, yeah. So we were there for about a year, and then we moved to Boonville, Missouri. And then I was there for 12 years, and then I moved to Sacramento in okay. California. Now, you went to Kansas State. Why did you choose that, and were there any other schools that were interested in you? Oh, because it was the farthest school away from home. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was uh, kind of in a rebellious phase at the time. And um, also, too, from being in Boonville, you grow you grew up watching K-State and they were at the time they were one of the top teams in the country. Um I grew up watching them. I always was a big fan. And then um the opportunity to play for them and go on a visit just seemed awesome. And it was the first visit I took. So maybe I did get um, you know, they hit me with the glamour at really, really good because I didn't take another visit and I ended up going there. So but it was it was a great experience. Now Bill Snyder was your coach there, correct? He was there my first year, and then the next three years it was Ron Prince. Okay. Now what did each of those coaches, you know, what kind of impact did they have on you both as a player and as a person? Oh, they had 
a tremendous impact. Um, Bill teaches you how to work hard. Um, and he teaches you the importance of being a respectful, hardworking individual who doesn't complain and just gets the job done above anything else, no matter what. And the importance of molding yourself to that. Um, which I completely believe it. You know, you're going to go through troubles all the time. And the fact of the matter is you're going to have to save yourself more times than not. Most of the time, 99% of the time, you're going to have to save yourself. So you better get really good at saving yourself. Um, and then when it came to Coach Prince, there's a lot of little sayings that he had that I felt had a really big impact. But uh, I would say the biggest one was, if you want things to change, you must change. It's uh, always stuck with me. When when hard times pop up, you know, stop wishing for things to change. Go make it change. Get better. Be better. Equip yourself with the skills necessary to get the job done. Don't just sit there and cry and whine. Make something happen. You have all the ability to make it happen yourself. Don't, you know, sell yourself short. And if, and that's the big thing about that message uh, that I got was don't sell yourself short, go make it happen. Um, so I thought it was a really great message. Yeah. I mean, that definitely is a great message that, you know, you control your destiny. I mean, you can make things happen if you want to make things happen. You don't just wait for things to come to you. So I think that's great advice. Mm -hmm. uh, did you think you'd get drafted into the NFL? Oh, I, 100%. I thought I would. <laughs> I thought if you would have asked me in when I was a high school freshman, I mean, when I was a freshman in high school, yeah, for sure. Freshman in high school. If you would have asked me in middle school, I would have told you the same thing I would tell you now. I'm going to be a first-round draft pick. Um, but what happened was actually more of a blessing in disguise anyway, because when you go into the league as an undrafted free agent, you get to pick where you want to go. So that means you get to pick the situation you're going into, which was really a blessing for me because I paid a lot of, I paid of a lot of, I paid a lot of attention to football and the rosters. I knew all the players. I knew where they were, what school they went to, how they, how good they were in college, what they did in college. I paid, I was really like a, a football junkie. Um, so when it came down to picking where I wanted to go, I, I had to pick out of five teams and I picked the best situation for me. And I knew Arizona just um, went to the Super Bowl and the two starting inside linebackers were really great players, but behind them were four undrafted free agents. So I, so I understood too that when it comes to the NFL, you are an investment as well. So they're going to pay if they if they drafted a guy in the second round and you got and you're an undrafted free agent and you guys are exactly the same, they're going to play they're going to play him. They're not going to play you. Um, they have more money involved with them. They have to see what's what's going on with them. It's it's very political, and I I understood the political process from being at K State, especially when um, Coach Prince took over. There is a political element that you really need to understand as an athlete um, going into collegiate sports. 
it's it's not just about be, being talented. It's about what you got to understand relationships, which is the big thing. You need people behind closed doors fighting for you. And you need people behind closed doors that trust you. First and foremost, you don't have to be the best guy, but you got to be the most trustworthy. And if you're not trustworthy, you're not going to play it. It doesn't matter what sport. It doesn't matter. Male, female, it doesn't matter. If they can't, if a coach can't trust you, you're not playing. Period, point blank. Now, when you had signed with the Cardinals in 2009, they had some serious talent on that team. I mean, on the offensive side, it's what, Kurt Warner, Anquan Bolden, Larry Fitzgerald in the defense. You had uh, Calais Campbell, Darnell Dockett, Dominique rogers Cromartie, Adrian Wilson, Antrell Roll. I mean, as a rookie, what are you thinking when you walk into that locker room for the first time surrounded by these athletes? Oh, it was crazy. It was it was one of the craziest experiences of your life because as soon as I walk in the locker room, my first day I get in there, um, I see Darnell Dockett, and I was thinking, man, this guy's huge, and he's tattoos all over his body. Um, he just he just looks like a scary guy. Um, that was my first thought. And then the second person I saw was Larry Fitzgerald, and I was thinking, my first thought was thinking, like, man, this guy is big, like whoa, he's a wide receiver? And I just started looking at myself and just thinking, man, I'm small, but I'm 245. But a two, 245 in college is way different than 245 in the NFL. It's way different. You learn that really quick. You, you, I'm 245, but I look like a guy that's 220. <laughs> yeah, you know, because you've been drinking or partying or doing something crazy in college or eating a bunch of McDonald's or, you know, it's being a college student. Now you're here with the adults who take care of themselves and are focused fully on this job and you really see the gap. So that was probably the scariest thing is the gap. And, and preparation, most importantly, not talent necessarily, but preparation. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, Kansas state prepared you to be a professional? Oh, 100%. Oh, 100%. If I didn't understand the political side uh, my last three years, I I would have walked into the NFL complete a completely different person. I was very aware. And that was the reason why um, I was able to walk away from the game on my own terms was because I understood the political aspect and how to navigate those waters the best way possible because at Kansas state, I never started more than half a season there. Never. I had really great film, but I only was there half the time. And so I came out with a lot of red flags, but the thing that I did understand was I did understand I had talent. I understood that these, these coaches are going to get behind closed doors, the offense and the defense, the special teams, all the supporting staff, they're going to have meetings and then they're going to talk through every person on the roster. And you need as many of those people behind closed doors to be fans of you. So you got to get really good at building relationships with those players. I mean, with those people, or you're not going to really succeed long. It doesn't matter if you're a five-star recruit or a guy that no one's ever heard of from middle of nowhere to Alaska or, you know, Zimbabwe, it doesn't matter. The, if you can't build a relationship with these people, you will not have a career. Um, unless you're Bo Jackson. That and, and there's very few Bo Jacksons. Like, trust. <laughs> so, 
if you can't if you can't do that, you got to be good at relationships. So yeah, Kansas State definitely prepared me for that. And then with Bill, he taught me how to work my face off and just live, just focus on results instead of all the stuff going around, focusing on results and always making sure that I'm dependable. So yeah, Kansas State definitely prepared me. Uh, you spent uh, four years with the Cardinals. Um, Ken Wisenhunt was your head coach at that point. And then mm -hmm. after those four years with the Cardinals, you move over to the Chargers where Ken Wisenhunt's the offensive coordinator. How was that reunion for you? It was great. I love Wiz. Wiz is, Wiz is my guy. Um, and then, you know, my special teams coach there, um, Kevin Spencer, he he was also there in Arizona, and then he went to the Chargers. And I, I love Spence. I love him. Um, it was a, it was a phenomenal experience. And then when you're at that level and you're going to war each week, it's good to have people that you trust and that you care about that you're going to war with. So it was, it was awesome. How was the culture different between the uh, Cardinals and the Chargers? Um, that's a good question. I would say that, I would say the biggest difference would probably be um, towards the last couple of years there when I was in Arizona, um, a lot of the big name guys left. So as far as talent goes, we had some guys who could play, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same as if when I, when I got to San Diego, it wasn't the same because when I got to San Diego, they were very talented. Um, I was always involved with the three or four defense. But how we ran the three four defense in Arizona was completely different than how they did it in San Diego. They had we had a lot of quick guys in Arizona who would fill gaps and penetrate. And in Arizona, they had I mean in San Diego, they had guys who were real big space eaters that would take up multiple blocks so you could just run more and not have to focus more on uh making plays with your feet or taking on blocks. So it was different, and I, I I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah, and the defense was ran a little bit different, and it was a little bit of a cooler culture because you're in San Diego, and it's hard not to you know just go with that vibe. You're right by the beach, and like, man, we can get this done. We don't need to struggle though. <laughs> <laughs> we can get it done. Let's get some tacos too. <laughs> It was it was a it was a just a chiller vibe, but it was it was good. We still got things done, so I was I was proud of it. Mm. Talk to me about playing with Philip Rivers. Oh, I love that guy. He's he's pound for pound one of the toughest people I've ever been around. Um, he's one of the toughest individuals I've ever been around. I he played with a broken back one year. Mm -hmm. he, he played with a broken back. And I'm pretty sure he didn't even do treatment, which was, I don't even know how you do that. Um, but he's also one of those guys who has a reputation that is so not true. They Before I got there, I thought he was a whiner. I thought he was a complainer. I thought he was just one of these, one of those guys. Um, he's just not, he's not a very tough guy. Just, just kind of a punk. And, he is the exact opposite of that. He is tough as nails. He talks trash. He wants all the problems. Um, he's super intelligent, super intelligent. 
he knows the game in and out. He uh, and he's a leader. He he's one of those guys that I would say, yeah, if you're you want him in your foxhole, you definitely want him in your foxhole. And it and if he's the leader of your whole crew in the foxhole, you know you're gonna be fine. I, I feel like I couldn't get I can't give anybody a higher compliment than that. Yeah, that is definitely a high compliment when you say, you know, you'd you'd want to go to war with that person. So Yeah. All right. So you spent two years with the Chargers and then the preseason with the Broncos. And then after you you were released, did you want to continue playing or were you done looking towards your career after football? I was done before I started with Denver, to be honest. <laughs> I was done. After that last season in San Diego and they released me, I worked out for a week, went back to the gym, put my hands on the door and could not open the door. I was so done with all of this. I just hated it at that point. I hated it so much. I couldn't take another step forward. Um, and it's crazy getting to that point where you hate something so much that you used to love so much. Um, but all the veterans told you, they told me you're going to get to this point where you just you're just not going to want it anymore. You just, it's just going to be done. And you don't know if it's going to be today, tomorrow, a year from now, 10 years from now, 20. You just don't know. Um, but that was when I had my moment. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was fine. I was ready to be done. And I, and then how I finished, I could have still came back even after the Broncos released me. Um, I could have, the Arizona hit me up and then, uh, the Patriots hit me up. Um, but I was so done. I didn't want any more. And I, 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 my focus completely turned to something else. Now, what did you do to prepare for life after football? Well, I knew after my second year that there's, there's a reckoning coming. Um, as far as I was, I was fueled for so long on hatred and football is one of the best sports for someone who is fueled on hatred um but can't express it in regular civilian life football is a perfect sport for you because um with a lot of the abuse and then you know a lot of things that i went through it was really tough for me to express that um vocally but with football, I was able to get all of that out in a safe space where I didn't hurt anybody and I didn't do anything crazy. I didn't have to resort to drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Um, but it gets to a point where you're tired of living on that hatred. Always having this chip on your shoulder because the chip gets heavy after a while. Eventually, you just start thinking, is there a different way I can go about life? And that's the point where I got to. And um, I'm really grateful that I got to that point. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the abuse that you went through. Um, it's one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to have you on this podcast to talk about, you know, the struggles that you went through and how you overcame that and how you've been helping other people. Uh, why is it important to you to Talk about what you went through growing up and how did you first get help? Oh, um, well, it's important for me to talk about it because I understand that there's 
at first I thought it was just me, but then when I started talking about it, it became very apparent that I'm actually more in the majority than, than the minority. It's just the majority is not speaking about it. And that was scary because when I actually started being okay, talking about some of the abusive stuff that happened with me, it was when I was still in the NFL. And the first people that I could talk to were my teammates because I trusted them. And the thing that always shocked me after every time I told them what happened, I would always ask, um, I mean, they would always tell me is something like that, like that, something like that happened to me too. And I always asked them, how many times have you talked about this before? And they would always say, this is the first time I've ever, I've ever spoken about it. And that scared me because when I went, after I got done, I went to two, I did two treatment center stays because I needed to do it. I was just suicidal. I was the anxiety and depression and trying to transition into life and just a lot of things that you just you don't realize how much you put on the back burner until it all hits you at once. And that's kind of what it was. Um, and I needed to get professional help to help deal with all the stuff I put on the back burner, which it was great. And a lot of people need to do this. That's why I speak about that. And it's fine. And I don't feel anything about it. It's was, it was necessary. Um, but uh, it really can show you so much more about your life and who you are than what you can even comprehend when you're just living your your life on hatred or anger or I got to prove something to everybody or I'm running from something. You can be so much more powerful if you really are just comfortably yourself for what you are. And that's something that's a big reason why I just speak. Um, because I know there's people out there that are hurting. I know that you can be comfortable in your own shell and you can succeed in your own shell. And sports is can be a tool to help you get there, but at the end of the day, you know, sports are only gonna last for so long. And so you can't look at it more than just the tool. Um, if you're one of these athletes and you have bigger aspirations, it just is what it is. Um, that's just how I look at it, at least. Mm-hmm. Now you had mentioned that, you know, you were able to open up to some of your teammates, but I also know that, you know, there is still some of that stigma out there, you know, growing up, men are told to suck it up and don't dwell on stuff. And I mean, that had to have made it more difficult for you to be able to open up for the first time, but did you still have some of that stigma in those locker rooms without mentioning teams or names or anything? Um, still have some of that stigma um, outside of the teammates that you were able to confide in? No, not at all. I was, and I was very surprised because I thought a thousand percent, if I would have bet every penny I've ever earned in my entire life on, if I start saying something about this, someone's going to call me a punk or they're going to sit there and say I'm this or I'm that, or tell me I need to suck it up or anything like that. And to be honest with you, I haven't, I haven't heard it at all. Um, If anything, I've heard, man, same thing happened to me. Same thing happened to me. Same thing happened to me. And that's that's the bewildering part about all of this, because I never thought it would be this way. I mean, it's great that, you know, you do have that supportive environment. Obviously, you know, 
your brothers in the locker room are always going to be there to help each other. But, you know, to be able to have those types of open conversations, um, it's definitely great. Now, throughout your career, did any of the schools that you went to or any of the teams that you went to provide mental health resources for those who needed it? Yeah. Um, but you do also have to understand, too, when I was playing in NFL, it wasn't like it is now. Mental health a couple of years ago wasn't a major focus. It just wasn't a major focus anywhere. Anywhere. Um, it's not how it is now. They have had resources, but again, the importance of mental health was just not known to most people how it is now. So I don't knock any of the organizations that you know I played ball with as far as uh, the resources that they provide provided because I know they've definitely upped their game since then. It just was what it was at that period of time. No one was really talking about it. No one was thinking of uh, the importance of mental health and maintaining strong mental health. We, no one cared about that. It was just suck it up, everyone. And even in your own mind, that's what you're thinking. Like, I just need to suck this up. You just don't know any better. No one knew any better. So that's kind of how I look at it. Now, you had mentioned that you were in a treatment center. I know that you went to a treatment center twice when you realized that, you know, therapy alone was not enough. How did you get the courage to get that additional help in the treatment centers? Um, I had the courage to let someone push me in the back onto a plane and not fight them on it, basically. That was it. Because I was so beaten down and... I was having such a hard time dealing with everything that I had just, I put everything off. I put so much off. And then when ball was over and I didn't have that crutch of playing professional football there, I had to deal with it all at once. All the abuse, all the stuff that happened in college, all the stuff that happened in high school, all the stuff that happened growing up, all these things you just never talk about, you never deal with, but have a major impact on your life. And I had gotten to a point where I knew, okay, I'm kind of get, being gifted with a reset right now. You know, I've lived 27 years. I can try something different now. But in order for me to do that, I need to really analyze myself and see why have I got the results that I've gotten up to this point. So I really went and did a three-year period. It was three years where I just analyzed everything that had happened up to that point, all the abuse, everything. And I sat with it. I sat with it all. I sat with every bit of it to understand what it was. So I don't re repeat those mistakes again. And I can make a plan going forward um, to have the life that I want to have. And uh, I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad it, it was completely, it was awful. It wasn't like this, uh, you know, eat, pray, love type thing. It's It was more of a, you're fighting demons. You're fighting demons type thing. And demons that you knew were there for years, but you're finally fighting them. And it took years to beat them all. It took years. Um, so that's why I do a lot of the things that I do now, because I know some people who are living with these demons, um, you can fight them a lot earlier and a lot better than what I did or what I've seen some other people do. And um, actually fighting these things 
isn't as scary as you think. It's hard, but that doesn't mean it's as scary as you think it is before you even take that first step. Because that first step, you got to really, there's a, you're basically just jumping into nothing. Um, it's scary. So, yeah, I just try to be here for that mm. and those people. I mean, you kind of alluded to a little bit with this, but if people are struggling with abuse or depression or suicidal thoughts, what's your advice for them to be able to get the help that they need to be able to get through what they're facing? I would first ask them to just give themselves some time to think about why am I feeling this way and try to take your emotions out of it the best way that you can the best that you can at the time the more that you focus on that skill of taking your emotions out of things the better you'll get at it so you can see things for what they are logically reasonably um without the color of emotion try to understand why and unbiased the best that you can um because it's a, it's a really difficult skill to have, but you can understand a lot about yourself if you really just understand why am I doing these things? Why am I feeling this way? And then the second thing I would always advise people to do is talk to someone else about it that you can trust, that you know is going to give you what you're needing in that moment. You know, who's going to give you what you're going to need in that moment? And I'm not talking about drugs or alcohol or anything like that. I'm talking about a trusted advisor, someone who has their head on their shoulders, maybe have gone through something similar to what you're going through, a therapist, um, pastors, somebody that you know has the skills to talk to you. That's a big point. Someone that can have the skills because sometimes you can be led astray by a parent uh, your uh, significant other, friends, cousins, it doesn't matter. If they're not that type of person, don't go to them with that type of information because a lot of people don't know how to talk about stuff like this and a lot of people aren't really the right person you should be going to in that moment of need, Um, which is something that I've had to understand and a lot of other people who um, have had mental health struggles I've had to understand too is and it has nothing to do with whether or not they want the best for you or they love you or anything like that it's just it has everything to do with skills who can actually have this conversation who actually has gone through this conversation who actually has um, has a path for me to take that's going to make me successful and get over this hill who actually knows that and you need to go to that person. And that's something in a lot of facets of life. If people, if more people did that, they'd have easier lives, you know, but teach their own, I guess, when it comes to that. Now, I know you're on the National Advisory Board of oneinsix.org. Can you tell me about that organization and why you wanted to get involved with them? Yeah. So one in six is an organization that um, helps, uh, survivors and uh, their families of uh, sexual abuse for males, male sexual abuse, um, yeah, males who have been abused, 
they they provide uh, educational resources, um, groups, um, help, community for those who have gone through that situation, just like myself. And I got involved because um, the people that I talked to within that organization, they're all people who have gone through that struggle. They understand what it is. They're very loving. They're very understanding. And um, they're willing to help me get a uh, platform to help their help. They're, they're glad for me to get involved, to help them with their platform and to help others. Cause they know that at the end of the day, it's not a money thing. Like some of these nonprofits are, it's a, it's, it's a, a passion thing. I have to help people in this. So um, I was just, I'm just glad for the opportunity to be honest with you. Now you did a TEDx talk and what was it about and why did you want to do it? So the TEDx talk was about just, I told him, I told my story a little bit, some of the struggles that I went through and um, some things that I learned along the way, as far as being able to overcome some of these struggles. Um, the reason I wanted to do it is, um, is always a little, little dream of mine to do a TEDx. Um, someone presented me with the opportunity. Um, I, wanted to just get my story out there to help others because I knew that there's a lot of people that are struggling with a lot of the same things that I'm struggling with or have struggled with. I just want to be able to just create something where people can heal from a lot of this trauma that whatever it is, like, I just want to be a part of the solution. So that was just another avenue for me to do that. So mm -hmm. I was glad and grateful for it. Now, in that talk, one of the things that, you know, I really want to emphasize is that you mentioned that one of the best and most important mentors in your life is yourself. Why is it important to have yourself as a mentor? Because you're the one living your own life. <laughs> At the end of the day, if things don't happen for you, the person who's going to suffer is you the most. Um, if things, if things, if you can't make something happen, it's your fault. It's one of those things, not, I'm putting it very black and white. I want to really watch my words when I say this. It's just the fact that you know you better than everyone else knows you. you you're the one who lives with the internal chatter. You're the one who lives with your thoughts. You're the one who knows internally what you really want to do, who you really want to be, why you really want to be that what you want to do, why you want to do that. You're the only person who can really give yourself a really good assessment of, am I where I want to be at this point? Because, you know, everyone has a different dream. You could have a dream. I just want to live in front of the beach every day. And that's, that's your scale. Am I at the beach every day? Am I eating tacos every day like I want? If you're doing that, you're living the life you want. If that's who you are as a person. But if you're someone who says, I want to make a multi-billion dollar company and take over the world and do something crazy like that, you know, you have a different marker. You're the one who creates your own marker for your own life. And you need to be aware of that. And as far as who you really want to be, only you really know that. Not your parents, not your friends, not anyone else. It's you. You're the one. But very few people like 
don't a lot of people don't like to take control over that aspect of their life. This is who I want to be. I'm going to be it. Some people aren't going to like it. Some people will. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to be me. And they don't understand that there's so much that you can free yourself from once you get to that point. Um, and that's when you're, you, you get to the beginning stages of living a fulfilled life because you're actually doing all the things you want to do. Um, you just got to understand that there's going to be a cost and those costs, that cost is going to be some friendships, some relationships, um, maybe money, maybe opportunities in certain areas. But if you do, but if you really focus in on yourself and your metrics, you'll be okay. That's what I truly believe and know from living it. I mean, that's the, definitely a great point that you're making about that. And uh, I'm glad that you got that out there and you talked about it. Uh, I know in a previous conversation that we've had that you mentioned that you created a class. Talk to me about that course and you know what's it about? Where is it offered? Uh, how can people find out more about it? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, I, I wrote a book, um, of, on, it's on Amazon. It's called the game within the game. It, um, was a bestseller overnight, which is crazy because I've never written everything, anything ever. And then, um, off the book, I had the opportunity to create a course and, uh, the course got college accredited through Forbes business school. Um, now it's in a couple colleges and the course itself is a personal development and mindset course, because the thing that I realized most athletes, it didn't matter what sport it was, didn't matter male or female, it doesn't, it didn't matter background. The thing that was the biggest problem was they never had advice, re really solid advice on how to go through being a collegiate athlete from someone who has actually done it before. Understanding the feelings, the pressure, the, the fact that you just stand out everywhere. Who knows the internal thoughts? Who knows where you're trying to go and actually knows how to get to where you're trying to go to? With feeling all these things emotionally, being this person mentally and emotionally, um, someone that can tell you, go that way. You don't have that. You usually have to find out by falling on your face a thousand times and picking yourself up a thousand one. That's just what it's going to be. And it's a, it's the war of attrition. And it shouldn't be that because it's a lot simpler than a lot of people think, especially, you know, when we had mentioned earlier, the political side of sports, especially once you get to college and how it, it's not something that is just completely talent based why people play. It's built on relationships, amongst other things. I wanted to create a course where I could teach people these things and make them aware of these things before they get into the situation um, in order to have less kids come out homeless or suicidal or not maximize on the opportunities that's in front of them because there's so many opportunities being a collegiate athlete, especially now with NIL. There's you can make a career out of yourself and not even have to go pro. You can make a great life out of yourself and not even have to go pro. And there, you can do this in a lot of sports now. The opportunity is right for the picking. It's just you need to know how to develop yourself during this, have the 
build relationships during this period, maximize on an opportunity in front of you, and then understand the skills that you need to build towards your your thing, your end all be all in your life. Whether that's I want to live my life on the beach all day, every day. I want to be a multi-billionaire. I want to have a family. I want to own a pet shop. Whatever that thing is for you, are you making steps towards that? But making kids aware of this process, which so many people don't really get to, especially athletes, until way after the fact. So, uh, yeah, I created this course. I got it into a lot of colleges. Um, now we're just pumping it out to uh, parents. We have a version for the parents and a version for kids. They could get it. They could go to our website, thegamewithinthegame.com, to take the course. It's college accredited nationally and regionally. So no matter what college they go to, for the most part, as uh, I can't – you got to put the disclaimer out there for, because there's somewhere somewhere where it may not be accepted. But for the most part, in North America and even uh, I'm pretty sure Europe, the course uh, – you get college credit for it, and uh, not on top of that, you get the the understanding of collegiate sports that you're going to necessarily need to be successful during and after your careers. So, yeah. All right, final question. You've talked a little bit about this throughout the interview, but and I asked the pointed question of what do you do on a daily basis to work on your mental health? I really listen to myself every morning. Every morning I take a walk. Um, and I base things off the walk. I understand the importance of having a schedule, but I also understand at this point the importance of listening to yourself. So I give myself what I need during that day after thought. That's the best way of putting it. I give myself what I need that day after thought because sometimes you can feel something like, Oh man, I just want to go and eat a thousand donuts today. That's all I want to do. That's going to make me feel good. And I watch Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones. And that's all I want to do today. But if you give it some thought, you know, like, uh, I'm just trying not to, I just kind of want to be under a blanket and I don't want to be around people, but you know, let me, and then you give it some more thought, you know, I'm just kind of worried about this thing at work. So you got to kind of, you got to let yourself think. That's why I give myself a long walk. I walk for an, about a 30 minutes to an hour each morning. I work through some thoughts. I build my schedule from the day off that. And then I follow my schedule. I try to be on a schedule each day. Um, I'm not a hard line scheduled guy. I kind of fill it out as I go. If I get to two o'clock, I'm doing this at two o'clock, but the day is kind of going somewhere else. I'll switch it up. I'm not super hearted into it that way, but I do keep myself on a schedule and I do make sure that I have bullet points of the day that I need to hit and I hit those. And um, that helps me maintain my mental health plus uh, meditating, even if it's five minutes, even if it's five minutes, even if it's just a walk where you're just walking and you're not thinking of anything, you're just breathing. Um, I always schedule time for that because it is absolutely necessary for me um, because, you know, I, I I have depression, I have anxiety, I, I, I'm a normal human being like everyone else trying to make it, trying to get, you know, do things in life, have the best life possible. So you have, you get anxiety, you get depression, you feel defeated, you, you, you have 
points of low self-confidence, just like everyone else. Um, but sometimes I, I'll give myself five minutes throughout that day to just let myself feel what I feel. I feel upset. All right, I'm upset. I'm just going to sit in it for a second. Oh, I feel sad. Well, I feel sad. Let me sit in it for a minute. I don't ignore these emotions. I just schedule time out to deal with them instead of before where I didn't schedule that time. And that's been extremely helpful. Sometimes, you know, that five minutes turns into 30 minutes. Sometimes that five minutes that you scheduled out was you only need a minute, you know, that's, it just depends on the day. And I give myself that flexibility, which also helps me out. So I try to be flexible as well. Reggie, thank you so much for being here and for opening up about everything you've gone through in your life. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best going forward. Uh, thanks. Thank you for having me on, Ken. And it, this has been awesome. Thanks for listening to our interview with Reggie Walker. As mentioned, there will be no pro football history nugget of the week this week as we want Reggie's message to stand on its own. If you're suffering from depression, reach out for help. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988 or text HOME, that's H-O-M-E, to 741741 to reach a trained counselor. If you're a male that's been a victim of sexual abuse, the organization that Reggie works with is One in Six. Reach out to them at oneinsix.org. That's the number one in the number six dot org. The link is on the episode page of this podcast. The important thing is that you are not alone. It's not a sign of weakness to reach out for help. I'm not going to end this episode the way that I normally end it with music and advertisements for the FLA. I'm just going to say, reach out and talk to someone. Whether it's for you or whether it's for someone else, just talk to someone. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.